Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. 30 on Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I'm the Bill Arnold. Part of that sentence, we're going to have a fantastic hour. You're going to love this hour coming up. Um, Gary Thomas is going to get us started. He's written a book called When to Walk Away, Finding Freedom from Toxic People. So hmm, you might be thinking, what's the difference between a toxic person and maybe just someone who's a little bit of a pain? We're going to find out how to find refuge in God when you feel under attack and discernment when to walk away from a toxic situation. I can't wait to get things started with Gary, and uh, we're going to open up the the text line as well, because you probably know or are in one or have one, a toxic relationship, and maybe you don't know when to walk away, and you've got a question. So I'm sure Gary will take it. The text line is 877-933-2484. You know, people live in difficult relationships all the time. You know, just over the weekend, I was reading, and of course the Beatles, you know, the greatest band ever, they had a very toxic relationship amongst each other. And I was uh, reading about their very first album called Please Please Me, and it, it was uh, recorded in three days. But they wrote 10 of the 14 songs. They recorded 10 of the 14 songs in one day. Talk about a good day's work. And of course that album catapulted to the top of the charts for 30 weeks. Not a bad day's work, but they had trouble getting along. This Sad, sad. Anyway, let's take a break, and we'll bring on Gary. We love hearing from Faith Radio listeners. It's easy to get in touch with us through the Faith Line. When you call 877-933-2484, listen to the greeting, and then press the number 1. Then leave a message for a show host or general manager, Neil Stavum. You can also ask a question about upcoming events, and the event coordinator will contact you. Or if you'd like information on a specific program, you can inquire about that as well, and the producer of that show or another staff person will get back to you. Another way to access program information is through MyFaithRadio.com. Look under the Programs tab for specific show information, including recent guests and topics. Again, the number for the Faith Line is 877-933-2484. That's 877-933-2484 or 877-93-FAITH. Give us a call anytime and leave a message to stay connected to Faith Radio. Gary Thomas is my guest. He wrote Sacred Marriage. Maybe you have a copy of that on your bookshelf, among other books. He is a writer in residence at Second Baptist Church in Houston. He has spoken in 49 states and 10 countries and has appeared on a number of TV shows uh, and radio programs. 
and now he's on our show. So awful glad to have you on board, Gary. How are you? Doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, 49 states. Which one haven't you been to? South Dakota. <laughs> well, and, and, and there's been some people from there that have talked to me about it. My wife has said, no, you shouldn't go because oh. it sounds so much more authentic when you just say 49 instead of 50. That does. It's so true. But, but uh, <laughs> you know, people in, in South Dakota are listening today, so you've got to be really nice to them. Really nice. Okay. And then you're at uh, Second Baptist Church. Is that um, a little bit not as good as First Baptist? Well, there was a big dispute about 80 years ago over, I believe it was playing cards and dancing. <laughs> and um, so that created two Baptist churches in Houston, which now they're both doing very fine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I used to live in Houston, so I went to uh, First Presbyterian when I was there. <laughs> anyway, uh, cool book. And boy, this is a topic everybody wants to know more about. Well, thank you. It it was revolutionary for me just to come across the whole idea. In in many ways, I'll be honest, I I felt like I had just had blinders on when reading the Scripture until it was unlocked, how often Jesus and the disciples not only walked away from people themselves, but urged others to do the same. Mm, Really interesting. Now, let's. I want to get back to that, but let's start just talking about what's the difference between a, a toxic person and just someone who might be a little bit of a pain. Yeah, that's a great question. Every toxic person is difficult. Not every difficult person is toxic. When I'm using the label toxic, I'm referring to somebody that's actually not just frustrating, but they're trying to hurt you. Mm. They're, they're basically the kind of people that's taking a piece out of you. Uh, maybe an analogy, if you have a tray, you want to feed food. I mean, that's, that's what we all do. We want to serve. We want to give our gifts to, that God has given us to others. So you have a tray of food there. The difficult person might come and clear off the whole tray and put it in their own bag. The toxic person will say, well, that's not enough. Why don't you cut off your arm and let me chew on that? So uh, they're controlling you to keep you from other relationships. They're haunting you so that you're not free for other relationships. They might be undercutting your joy, your peace, your self-confidence, so you feel like you have nothing left to give. So when you notice that somebody isn't just frustrating you or slowing you down, but, but literally destroying who you are and what God has called you to do, for you, I believe that person has become not just difficult but toxic. That's a great answer. We could, we could stop the interview right now, and I'd be happy. And this is solid yeah. stuff. So that was really a yeah. great explanation. I, re- I really, really like that. So um, let's get back now to Jesus uh, instructing people to walk away. Yeah, well, this is what opened up my eyes because I, I had my own issue in a toxic situation. And I was talking to a counselor and I just said, I don't know how to say I don't know how to get through. I don't realize what's going on. And it was his comment, Gary, I recommended you not engage him at all that took me caught me short. What do you mean? Because it felt like that would be a failure. He said, go to the book of Luke, count how many times Jesus walked away from people or let other people walk away from him. And I went to all four Gospels, counted 41 separate citations. Now, because of the synoptic Gospels, some of those refer to the same instances, but there's still a couple dozen occasions where Jesus' interaction with someone resulted in a separation. They weren't all toxic, but many of them were. When people were just hard-hearted, or they're trying to do Jesus harm, and, and he would slip out and go away. And then Jesus telling us to do the same. In Matthew six thirty three, he tells all of us to go on, on offense when he says, seek first the kingdom of God. 
But in Matthew 7, 6, just a very few verses later, that's when he says, but you also have to play defense when he says, don't give what is holy to dogs or throw your pearls before swine or else they will turn and tear you to pieces. So Jesus is saying, be free and share, make spreading God's word the aim of your life. But as you go out, know that some people not only won't receive it, not only will they not just resent it, they'll attack you and try to tear you to pieces. And Jesus is explicitly saying, I don't want you to have to face that. So learn to be wise about who you share this good news with. All right, Gary, this is... uh... This is good, really good, and I'm wondering how many listeners right now, are their ears have just become red hot with, tell me this again. I mean, give me permission to actually do this, because people feel stuck. I mean, I just had a listener uh, ask, I've been in an abusive, toxic relationship. Now it's in, also yeah. in addiction, too, so it's a meth addict and alcoholic, which makes his anger yeah. and rage worse. How do you let go when you know this monster he has become isn't him? It's his, it's his addiction. It's so hard. I know he's a good person, but his addiction has taken over. I don't deserve the abuse, but it's hard to let go. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of misplaced guilt has kept Christians in really unhealthy situations, and it's it's taken us away from many positive interactions and much ministry that we could have otherwise. In fact, I do think that's one of Satan's most cleverest attacks against the church. He knows he can't stop us from caring and wanting to serve and help others, because God's Spirit makes us love and want to care and want to help. But if He can get us to pour that love and care down the gutter of toxic people rather than out to a field where it's going to produce a great crop, that's what He's going to try to get us to do. So the analogy I would give that person who asked you that question is that of a lifeguard. One of the first lessons they teach lifeguards is how to defend themselves, because when you go out to help a drowning person, they'll often at panic and try to bring you down. Mm. And and the whole key is if you drown with them, nobody is saved, and then all the people you could save won't be saved. So you have to learn self-defense even when you're helping, hurting, challenging people, and not to own their response. Uh, One of the things that shocked me, just as I was doing the research for this, going through the scriptures and whatnot, is how uncontrolling God is and how uncontrolling we're supposed to be. We speak the truth as Jesus did and as Paul did. But if people won't receive it, we've got to let them go. To try to control them is evil. That's what Satan does. God gives us the choice, speaks the truth. So we don't want to become toxic ourselves in trying to control a person, even when that person might be doing something to harm themselves. Okay, Gary, talk more about control mongers. That's in Chapter 4 of your book. When to walk away. Gary, go ahead. Yeah, that, and that was, again, that, that was huge for me because as powerful as God is and as right as God always is, I mean, we would know as believers that if we always did what God told us to do, we would be better off for it. And yet God speaks the truth and says, but it's your call if you want to follow me or not. Going back to Joshua, choose you this day whom you will serve. And Jesus speaking the truth to so many and then walking away when they didn't want to receive it. Even the rich young ruler, that wasn't a toxic situation, but Jesus told him, here's what you have to do if you want to be perfect. Sell all you have, give to the poor and come follow me. When the rich young ruler walked away, Jesus didn't chase after him. He turned to his disciples and said, let me explain to you why it's so difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, in one of the Gospels, this is so key, when the rich young ruler came up to Jesus, it said Jesus loved him. 
Jesus loved him. This was not a dispassionate thing. Jesus had great hopes for this person. Jesus thought well of this person. And and so it wasn't just he, he's being mean or callous. He just is so strategic in his ministry that even somebody he cares about, if they're not willing to receive the truth, he's going to let him go and spend his time with people who will speak the truth. So again, to that the, the questioner that you had, I would say the way you walk away from an addict who's destroying himself is to find somebody who's actually in recovery, somebody who wants the encouragement, somebody who will receive the help. And then you just hope that the addict will eventually come around. But until then, find reliable people to invest in. And there I'm basically quoting Paul in 2 Timothy 2.2 when he said to Timothy, that's what you should be doing. Focus on the reliable people who will be qualified to teach others. All right. Now, Gary, I need to take a little break, but uh, we'll be back in 90 seconds. Gary Thomas is my guest. He's written a book called When to Walk Away, Finding Freedom from Toxic People. If you have a question, let us know. Text only 877-933-2484. Be right back. Welcome back to the show. Gary Thomas is my guest. He's written a book called When to Walk Away, Finding Freedom from Toxic People. Gary, I should have booked you for like three hours. I'm sorry. I'd be happy to come back in the future, though. Well, no, now we have that on record, so you are going to come back. So I've got that on tape. All right, let's go back to toxic people. How do we stand up to them? Well, I found the best thing to do is what Jesus did and what Paul so often did and what the Apostle John, even John the Apostle Love urged people to do, is that we just avoid and we walk away. We don't have to play their game. What I've warned Christians about is that toxic people are better at being toxic than we are in handling them. They've been toxic most of their lives. They have an agenda. We're trying to play a different game. We want to see positive fruit done. Toxic people don't, and that's why I think that's why we have to walk away. What opened my eyes is that for a toxic person, a peaceful office setting where people are getting their work done, encouraging each other is boring. A mutually encouraging, supportive marriage where there isn't a lot of drama, there's not a little, a lot of undercutting, not slander. That's boring. Uh, and a in a family gathering where everybody's just swapping stories and encouraging the young or, you know, giving honor to the older or something, that's boring. They live for the divisiveness, for the drama, for malice, for anger, for rage. And, and, and so I basically found it's best just not to play their game because you won't win. And as far as they're concerned, if you're playing their game, it feeds them. Even if they're not stopping you from doing what God has called you to do. They're distracting you. Mm -hmm. And I've also found that I'm so weak. I'm never more tempted to be toxic than when I'm interacting with a toxic person. They control me. I want to control them. They try to slander me. I want to slander them. And so I found Jesus's wisdom and Paul's wisdom in walking away is often best because we have two different aims in life. Our aim is to seek first the kingdom of God, to encourage, to love, to serve. They want to sow division, hatred, anger, and malice. And so basically we should just say, I don't have time for this. I'm going to walk away. So Gary, what are, what are some characteristics of a toxic person? Might they be liars? 
Manipulators. Oh, absolutely. Ab- absolutely. Colossians 3 has a list, I believe, that defines toxic people, and lying is one of that. It's Colossians 3, 11 through 12, anger, rage, malice, slander, lying, and filthy language okay. is one of the lists that Paul would use. And, and the reason that's so key is that Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, mm-hmm. and the life. And, and, and so toxic people, they, they often will lie. They, they will use gaslighting. That's a, a favorite thing. And if people don't know what gaslighting is, it means you make somebody feel like they're crazy for stating what is true and obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, if somebody calls them out on a sin, oh, how could you think that? Why would you think there's something wrong with you that your mind would even go there? And so you lose your sense of peace. You lose your sense of self-confidence, and, and the danger of that is then you feel like you have nothing else to give to other people. And, and when a toxic person assaults you so that you lose your joy, somebody says, well, Gary, doesn't it seem selfish that I'm worried about losing my joy, except for the Bible says the joy of the Lord is our our strength. Mm-hmm. And so they make you weak. And so if if I could give the listeners anything, it's a vision of what God can do through them. Because the message we carry is so precious, the reconciling power of God to bring grace and love and salvation to everyone, and the power of the Holy Spirit within us. It's not our gifts. It's not our understanding, our wisdom, our charisma. It's the power of the Holy Spirit within us. If we could get a grasp of what it means and how God could use us to seek first his kingdom, as Jesus calls us to, then we'll realize we just don't want to get distracted with playing the little petty games that toxic people force us into. If you talk to a toxic person in an argument for an hour, here's the thing, they're not going to change, and you're going to walk away and very likely be haunted from that encounter for the next few hours, just thinking, am I lost my mind? Am I going crazy? <laughs> and, and, and that's why I think, no, just focus on the offense. Do what God has called you to do and be willing to walk away from those that just really aren't prepared to receive God's truth. Mm -hmm. All right, Gary, how do you keep a tender heart when you're in this unhealthy relationship and you know you should love, but what you really want to do is build some kind of healthy boundary to keep yourself from falling into this trap? Yeah. It's very clear, I believe, from Scripture that I need to want the best for everyone. Rather than defeating an enemy... I wish I would have one more fellow worker in the kingdom of God. Jesus said, pray for the Lord of the harvest to send more workers. There are not enough of us. So I'm not going to waste time trying to tear down a toxic person. I'm not going to slander them. Um, My job isn't to find slander or toxic people and call them out and warn everybody about them. Uh, The analogy I use is more like this. If I'm driving to a very important appointment and there's litter along the road, I'm not going to stop and pick up every piece of litter. I don't have time for that. Mm -hmm. But if there's a tree lying in the middle of the road, then I've got to get out and move the tree so I can keep going forward. So invest in healthy relationships. Do the ministry and work that God has called you to do with the people that God has called you to do it with. You ignore the attacks of toxic people. You ignore the accusations of toxic people. If there comes a time when they block what you're doing and you have to confront them, you do so. But then you drive on. You don't look in the rearview mirror. You don't let them haunt you. You just figure, okay, I've got to get them out of the way. 
not because I hate them, not because I want ill will for them. I hope eventually they'll see the light and become a worker in God's kingdom and spread love instead of hate. But until they do, they're in my rearview mirror, and I'm looking ahead to the people God has called me to reach. You know, Gary, when you deal with toxic people, normal appeals to them usually don't work, do they? No, they don't. And the reason is they don't think they're the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a, an adult tooth pulled a couple months ago because I had a, a root canal that went bad. And they kept getting an infection underneath. I said, Gary, you got to take it out. And it was terrible. As an adult to have a tooth pulled, it feels like they're pulling your jaw up through your eye socket. Yeah. I don't know if anybody... Plus, it's, they're making but, you know three stooges noises. They're trying to pull it out of your mouth. Yeah. And if, if somebody would have woken me up, strapped me to a chair, and did that, I would have been screaming <laughs> bloody murder. Right. I, would, I want him the jail. I'm going to call the right. cops. I paid the guy $900 to do that to me. Why? <laughs> because I knew I had an infection. I, I could see on right. the x-rays. I've got an effect. If you don't think there's an infection in you spiritually trying to confront them or share them, it, it doesn't help. Telling a toxic person that what you said just hurt me is like feeding a rhinoceros. They want more. They're like, oh, now it's getting fun. I found my next victim. And, and so the normal methods of working with a toxic person, they don't usually respond to shame. They feel no shame. They don't respond to feelings that you hurt me because that's kind of their goal. And, and so that's why often walking away is our best response because you can't win in that game. If God hasn't prepared their heart, there's not going to be conviction. And my, my four words that I say in the book now is no conviction – no counsel. I'm looking for the people that God has prepared. If he hasn't, I'm not going to be able to break through because evangelism isn't just sharing truth, as important as that is. It's seeing God's work. And the same thing is within the church because there are a lot of toxic people. And I don't want to say a lot. I don't want to overstate it. But there are some toxic people in the church. And if they aren't walking in a place of repentance and openness to God's voice, uh, confronting them will just make them what Jesus said, turn and tear you to pieces. How dare you? And then they're going to make you their enemy and figure out ways to talk you down and ask people to start praying for you because you probably lost your mind or, you know, whatever they say. And they will try to bait you into believing that, you know, that as you're talking about their toxicity— that they're going to make it about you versus even dealing with their own toxicity. I don't know if I asked that question correctly or made the statement well, but I think you know no, what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it's, it's a great point. If you read through the book of Nehemiah, it's a whole chapter in the book. They used everything. They pretended to be his friend. Then they asked, we're giving you a warning. Then they had a ridiculous threat. You know what? You just want to make yourself king of Jerusalem. People remember Nehemiah is the one who built the wall around Jerusalem when the second temple, after the second temple had been built, they, they tried everything. And then they said, okay, we're going to bring in other people. So they're gossiping about it. They tried four or five approaches because it goes back to them being control mongers. Toxic people are determined, you will do what I want you to do. I'll pretend to need you. If being needy doesn't help, I'm going to threaten you. If threatening doesn't help, I'm going to pretend I'm helping you. If that doesn't help, I'm going to bring in others who will bring pressure on oh, you. Gary, and I, that's why we have to have our sense of mission. Yeah, i got to have you back because it's only Monday, and you'd be my MVP of the week right now. <laughs> Seriously, this is so interesting. Would you come back soon? Absolutely. Okay, good. I'd be happy to. All right, then we'll just continue. 
Uh, Gary Thomas has been my guest. When to walk away, finding freedom from toxic people is his book. We'll take a short break. And then when we come back, we're going to chat with Amanda Hope Haley. Be back in a minute. As we have all loved studying the Bible uh, over our years and years of being believers, did we start by just, mm, let me think, hearing stories, and that we just heard stories and we believed them, and then we didn't really understand the full biblical context, we just kind of lived with the knowledge of what we heard about when we were young in school, and um, my my, uh, guest, Amanda Hope uh, Haley, has written a book called Mary Magdalene Never Wore Blue Eyeshadow which is a great title, and we're going to talk today about uh, that very thing, traditions, and how they seem to get elevated to doctrines. And all of a sudden, we aren't paying to paying attention to Scripture the way we should be, and she's going to help us uh, re, uh, readjust our thinking. Amanda, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. You know, it's interesting because I think for many, many, many years, I thought Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, I, in fact, I, I was in graduate school before I found out that that wasn't the case. Um, graduate school, divinity school <laughs> at that. So it was um, almost an embarrassing revelation on my end. Yeah. And not to mention uh, Harvard. Uh, yes. <laughs> so, I mean, you were uh, at a really good school and you didn't find out until you were there that Mary Magdalene wasn't a prostitute. That is, that's true. Um, I was, I was raised in the church. I was there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, all the time. My mom was raised the same way, her mother, and going back as far as I know. And um, he, um, anyway, I, I got in there and we were talking about this uh, non-canonical text that's called the Gospel of Mary. And in this text, uh, Jesus gives Mary some special knowledge that he doesn't give to the rest of the disciples and the disciples are kind of pushing back against that. And so the teaching fellow in our little discussion group at Harvard asked, you know, Hey, why do you think this is the case? Why do you think that the guys believed her? And I raised my hand because I knew I knew the answer. And I said, well, is it because she was a prostitute? (laughs) And, um, and this, one undergrad literally laughed at me and looked me in the face and said, how did you make it to grad school without knowing that Mary Magdalene was not a prostitute? And uh, honestly, it was a good question. It stung in the moment, but I mean, yeah, how did I make it to, you know, 23 years old being raised in the church thinking that? And when I, when I told my mom what happened, um, she had a similar shocked response. She thought the same thing at, at her age at the time, which I won't say, um, because she had been taught by her mother that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. Because my grandmother once dressed my mom up as Mary Magdalene for a passion play and smothered her face in blue eyeshadow <laughs> and makeup to indicate that she was a prostitute. Because mm-hmm. prostitutes were a lot of makeup, apparently. <laughs> well... Amanda, when I think of Luke 7, and I think of chapter uh, 739, it says, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a Mm -hmm. sinner. So I think a lot of people go, well, that must mean she was a prostitute. I think so. Um, Historically, the story goes that um, there was a man called Pope Gregory the Great who was trying to give a name to that woman in Luke 7, and she doesn't have a name. And so he... 
I mean, for whatever reason, looked for the next woman's name in the Bible, and that happened to be Mary Magdalene. So when he was teaching about the Luke 7 passage, he associated the two women. And then just over time, people started associating a lot of the unnamed women in the Bible, um, the adulteress, various figures, they would associate her with Mary Magdalene because Pope Gregory kind of started that tradition. And over time, the adulteress evolved into the prostitute. And I mean, this is this is just how the story came down to us. So you grew up as a conservative Christian um, yes. and that was your upbringing. So mm-hmm. you had, you know, probably very solid views of the Bible, right? I, I mean, I think so yeah. overall. Yeah. So yeah. have they changed or, or, I mean, let's talk about how you've gone from maybe believing some stories to you know, encouraging and helping people do um, more proper biblical study? Oh, wow. Well, the, the, the first thing I think I had to do was take a look at the Bible and, and try to read it for the first time as an adult. Mm-hmm. Because I think when we're children, we're taught the Bible as Bible stories because that's how children can process it. And I mean, that's a great thing. I I remember when I was in middle school, I had a young cousin who was in this beautiful play of Jonah and the whale, and he played Jonah, and it was just an absolutely precious evening. And I mean, the Holy Spirit was definitely there in that church, and goodwill and everything was built. It was it was a wonderful time, but the Bible doesn't say that it was a whale. It was a big fish. Mm-hmm. So that's one of those things that, that's a tradition that's... Um, what the tradition says is not actually what the Bible says. And so I want to strip back and somehow read the Bible as if I hadn't been told the story of Mary Magdalene or of Jonah and the whale so that I can see that, you know, Oh, wait a minute. It's just a fish. It's not a whale. And that's something that's really hard to do. It's a lot harder. I think to read the Bible and realize what's not there than to, um, you know, than to recognize something in there that you, you know, didn't think of before. Yeah, I mean, let's go to the the Garden of Eden. It wasn't an apple, sure. right? Exactly. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yes. Or and even in Genesis, the Genesis story to begin with, the Genesis story or even the flood story, there are two different versions that are in there. And when you go to secular institutions like Harvard or like other places, I think a lot of secular scholars like to take the places where tradition disagrees with scripture Mm -hmm. and use that as a reason for Christians not to believe in the Bible anymore. Um, And I'm certainly not one of those people. (laughs) Uh, When I look at Genesis and see the two stories, or I look at the flood story and, you know, see that he took both two of each animal and seven of some and two of another, those to me aren't contradictions. Um, Those are just the same story being told from different perspectives. And I believe that they're in the Bible for a reason. And that's what gets me excited is trying to figure out why, why the Bible's put together that way, why we have multiple accounts of a certain story. And um, why did God choose to include it in the scripture in that way when he could have had, you know, a heavenly editor narrow it down and just, you know, put the right historical thing in there. The actual histor- history of, if it were, two animals onto the boat or seven animals onto the boat. I don't think that's the point. I think the point is what the different stories tell us about God, how there are different perspectives of God in there, how the two work together. And um, that's how you, you learn the Bible better. It's how you build your relationship with God. And that's really all he wants is for us to have a relationship with him. 
Yeah, Amanda, this is such a uh, great discussion because it's important for believers to, you know, be discerning when it comes to doctrine versus tradition. Yeah, I think so, <laughs> definitely. And I, I, but I don't want people to think that doctrine is bad or that traditions are bad. Mm-hmm. I'm an, I'm an archaeologist. Um, I was going to get to that. I love very few things more than, than history and tradition and cultures and all of that. I, I really love all of that stuff. It all has its place. It just doesn't need to be confused with scripture. Those are different. That's not to say that so there, there are doctrines out there, for instance, the Trinity. The Trinity is a doctrine. If you look in the Bible, that word is not used, but that's, that's truth. That's something I absolutely believe in. It's a doctrine. It's tradition. Just because it's not spelled out exactly as we may think of it today doesn't mean that that's not true. Mm-hmm. Now, let's talk about your background in archaeology. Okay. Do you say more about that? I mean, what are some of the, uh, the, the, the archaeological digs you've been on? Um, so I've spent all of my time in Israel, and um, I, I worked in Ashkelon to begin with, and Ashkelon is on uh, the Mediterranean Sea. It is uh, it's about 30 minutes from Tel Aviv, and that was one of the five capital cities where the Philistines lived back during David's time. So when I dug there um, many, many years ago, back when I was in grad school, um, we, uh, I was working on the Iron Age period. And so we were discovering things about the Philistines who would have lived there during the time of King David and King Solomon. Their reigns roughly would line up with, with the Iron Age period. So um, I did that, and then this past summer, I returned to Israel 15 years later, and um, I dug at a place called Shimron, which is up in the Jezreel Valley, and this time, um, this particular site was pretty constantly lived in from the Calcolithic period all the way basically up until now. And so there are different places in the tell we were um, digging different time periods. And this time I worked on the Middle Bronze Age, which is roughly, um, let's say Moses, uh, would have about the time of the wanderings, that sort of thing. We were digging Canaanite materials this summer. So um, you, we dig about these other cultures uh, mm-hmm. to learn more about the Israelites because yeah. they were Israelites' neighbors. Um, they they shared some traditions and customs. The Bible talks about most of those in a negative light. God doesn't want his people doing the same things the Philistines do, doing the same things that the Canaanites do. But um, we can. that still doesn't mean we don't want to learn about them and know more about them. Yeah. Now, I don't want to uh, waste a Hebrew scholar's time too much, but I do have questions about archaeo- archaeological digs. When you go, how far, sure. how long are you there for? I'm just curious. Uh, it, well, it depends. If if you just want, if someone just wants to go and be a volunteer, yeah. you can go for as little as two weeks. Um, or if you go and you're on staff, um, typically like the people who run the excavations will be out there between six and eight weeks. And in Israel, it's always during the summer because you don't want it to rain while you're excavating. It's really important that everything stays dry Mm -hmm. because the dirt needs to look exactly the same day to day as you're digging so that you, um, so that you can keep up with your timelines. 
Okay, I just it's so interesting. And when you went uh, this past summer, how long were you gone? Yeah. Were you gone six, eight weeks? I was yes, yes, I was this time. So um, I only did half of the dig time, uh, and then I ended up staying in country and traveling around for a few weeks. My husband and my parents came to join me, and I'm actually working on my next book for Harvest House. Um, so it was. And then how it much, was some archaeological work, and then it was you know some other kind of publishing work too. Yeah, and how bad did you miss your Bassett Hound Cooper? Oh, <laughs> you were a mess, weren't you? I was complete. Yeah. <laughs> we uh, we uh, we live downtown, and so we we have a really good security system. One of those that has cameras inside the house, and at least once a day, I peeked in <laughs> on him to uh, see you know him typically you know, just lying on my spot in the couch, just yes, not doing fantastic. anything. But, oh, it it killed me. It yeah. just killed me to be without him. <laughs> okay, now back to other things like um because of the work you do, and you're going to probably face some backlash for the way in which you look at things. I mean, mm -hmm. you've got some, uh, talk about your position about creation. I feel, I'm going to generalize here. And okay. I feel like in the Christian world, the, um, there are two types of people. There are the people who they will say they read the Bible literally. And to them, that means every single word in their in their chosen English translation, whichever one it is, King James Version, NIV, you know, pick, pick your favorite. They believe every single word is absolute literal history, that it is there for history. Then I think there's the other, there's the other side um, that they get accused of not believing the Bible or taking it figuratively. And that, I think that's definitely true for some, but I'm, I guess, closer to that camp in that I like to consider not just what my actual English translation says as far as the words that are there, but where they came from, the time period that they were written down, who may have written it, all of that. To me, when you look at the Bible in that more holistic way, it takes a lot of the apparent contradictions out of it. So when I look at Genesis and not just the first chapter and not, or not just the second chapter, but looking at them together, there are differences in the way creation is described there. The Hebrew that is written there is not actually as literal as our English translations tend to make it sound. Mm -hmm. um, especially in, in the first chapter, um, one of the debates is what does the word that's translated today, D-A-Y, what does the Hebrew actually mean when it mm -hmm. says that? And the word that's used there can mean day and does mean day and is translated that way in the Bible often, but it also can mean just an unspecified period of time or another period of time. So when I look at Genesis 1, I have that in the back of my mind and I'm thinking we're, we're talking about you know an unspecified period of time. I don't think that's the point of that passage is to give us the exact history of the way everything was created. Um, I don't really know that that's important to our relationships with God. He gave us those stories in the ways that they are in there um, for us to wrestle with them and, you know, wonder. I see it as being an overview of the way creation happened. And then, you know, chapters two and three are your more narrative story, you know, getting down, God interacting with his creation, talking to his people that happened somewhere roughly in the timeline that's given in chapter one. Does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, it does. Man, this, I'm listening so carefully that I'm, I'm waiting for you to, um, you know, make sure you've said everything you're going to say. But now I, don't know. I, now I need to take a little break. I need to take a little break. When we come back, lots more with Amanda Hope Haley. She loves the Bible. She loves God's Word. She's got her master's degree of theological studies in Hebrew 
uh, from Harvard University. You've probably heard of that place. So we'll take a short break and be right back. show amanda hope haley is my guest and we are chatting about her book called mary magdalene never wore blue eyeshadow how to trust the bible when truth and tradition collide you know we were speaking right before the break amanda about genesis in chapter one you know and things like you know when god says to adam and eve you know be fruitful and multiply and replenish Mm -hmm. the earth it's like i i used to think what do you mean replenish the earth weren't they the first two people on the earth True. And you know, and then when you think of <laughs> yeah. Cain and Abel being born, you always assume mm-hmm. that those kids were born in a row. But they could have there could have been multiple children between Cain and Abel. Yeah, it's possible, definitely. Mm-hmm. We don't have all the details. Uh, you know, the Old Testament, it's not a history book. It's not a textbook. God didn't just sit down and, you know, give us the biographies of every single person and, and all of that. That's that's not why these texts are here. These texts are here to be, to teach us about him and to let us get to know him, not so that we have the master key to his creation. Right. When you encounter people that have read your book or mm-hmm. when they talk to you about the book you've written, they might come at you with uh, their common tradition-born beliefs, and yeah. they want to uh, have a conversation or maybe even a little bit of an argument. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I, the book hasn't been out very long, um, so I, one of the things I anticipate talking a lot about um, with people who hold very, very tightly to their traditions is the role of literalism when they look at the Bible. and. I think a lot of the reasons people disagree about what the Bible says comes down to a lack of understanding of the way languages work and the way translations work. So, you know, when I tell someone, you know, in creation, yom might not mean day, it might mean a period of time. There will be people who will say, well, then you just don't believe what the Bible says. You're not taking it literally. Mm-hmm. Well, in all honesty, it is impossible to take any translation literally, because if you go all the way back to the Hebrew of that word yom, it holds the meaning of a 24-hour day, but it also holds the meaning of 40 years of different periods of time used in different contexts. That doesn't get translated into English. And so believing the Bible isn't just about the black and white English letters on the page. You, you have to learn the traditions of the Bible, where they came from, or else um, images that are that are described, especially in the Old Testament, they don't make sense because they don't exist in our day. So uh, learning learning the traditions of the Bible, as opposed to the traditions that I think we have built up around the Bible from our own perspective, um, I think that's how you learn God a little bit better. Mm-hmm. That's how I that's how I love Him best is. I don't know, learning about my ancestors and and finding out what they believed about the Bible back in the day and what they believed correctly or incorrectly, I can learn from all of that. I always love the story of Christmas and how that story has been sort of hijacked from scriptures. And Mm -hmm. there's a lot of people that believe lots of parts of the Christmas story that just aren't in the Bible. True. Um, in fact, if you if you break apart just one day as an exercise, we're coming we're coming up close to Christmas. Yeah. Break it apart and read the narratives, the the, the Bible, the birth narratives 
in the different um, in the different gospels, and you'll see that you know one has angels but doesn't have shepherds, and the other one has shepherds, and the wise men only appear in one of them. And our culture has brought all of these together. I, I don't know this for a fact. I would guess that a lot of the storytelling and a lot of you know putting together the different parts of the Bible to come up with you know the nativity scenes that we all display in our homes at Christmas time. That tradition that developed probably came from a time when most people couldn't read their Bibles. Either they weren't literate or they didn't speak Latin, um, thinking of the time prior to the Protestant Revolution. And it's, um, I think that's where a lot of that comes from. But those are those are charming traditions too. And I know in my family, I was always the person who got to set up the manger scene. And sitting here today, I can still kind of smell like the old wood and the Spanish moss and the plastic that has surely degraded by this point, <laughs> 35 years later. Mm-hmm. Um, but we we have lovely family traditions around some of these things. But, you know, it, Jesus wasn't born in a barn. He just wasn't. <laughs> and we learned that, you know, thanks to thanks to archaeology and thanks to understanding the way cities worked at the time, he more likely was born on the first floor of someone's home right next to the animals that lived in that house Mm -hmm. because cities, barns didn't exist at that time the way that they do now. The animals lived on the first floor of actually people's houses. Um, So, you know, what we picture about, about him is, is, is not quite right. Um, But that doesn't mean we should all just abandon our nativity scenes either. Yeah, of course not. Now, Speaking of Thanksgiving, which is coming up, let's go back to 2016 uh, with your in-laws on Thanksgiving Day. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about too many cookbooks in the Christian kitchen. That comes from <laughs> just, you've heard the phrase, too many cooks in the kitchen. Yes. And a lot of it's too many opinions and often too many overbearing opinions. Mm-hmm. And um, that's kind of where the title of that chapter came from, is that you know in the Christian world, I, I talk in the chapter about just the number of, of Protestant denominations and then total Christian denominations that, that are all over the world. And the number is, is staggering. Um, but almost all of those come down, almost all the differences, almost, almost all the differences come down to disagreements over little things that often aren't even in the Bible. And it's those little things like, like, let's say, believing in a six day creation. Let's just mm-hmm. take that for an example. People will hold so tightly to that that one little thing that it causes a fracture in in Christianity in the body of Christ, and even though we may we hopefully all believe that Jesus was the Son of God and He died for our sins, that God is working in this world to you know to for restoration, even though we all believe the big big stuff, we're fracturing ourselves over the little things that we all hold on to maybe just a little bit too tightly, the things that that don't impact um, that don't impact salvation, and that's a real shame because what the world sees when they look at the church is all of our disagreements over the little things that really don't matter. And those are the things that I think we yell about and scream about the most and get, get the most upset about. I mean, when, when the kid in, in my Harvard class said to me, you know, Mary Magdalene wasn't a prostitute. The first thing I did was kind of puff up how, you know, 
how dare that kid sit there and challenge me and challenge my mother and my grandmother and everyone who taught that. I've been in church my whole life. This has to be correct. But then to take a step back and realize, oh man, he's actually right. You have to overcome, I think, fear of not knowing absolutely everything that's in the Bible. And you have to kind of become okay with that. And then anytime you have those really uncomfortable places, places where you disagree with your neighbor, press into those mm -hmm. and study them more. And um, by studying them more, you're going to become closer to God. And you're, I think you ultimately get closer to your neighbor who you may disagree with because you spend more time in the Bible. You learn more about love. You learn how to love that person. And even if you never come to an agreement about everything, you're going to understand each other better. No, Amanda, I, I can safely say I am finding myself being corrected almost every week, if not oh. every day, if not every day. <laughs> okay. Well, we all do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I'm, I'm usually, um, delighted to find a new discovery that corrects my thinking. And I had to go back and study again. I, I definitely felt the same way. I remember especially being in an undergrad when my my secular professors were first presenting these contradictions to me. And you know, I think that the Christian student in those situations has a bit of a crisis of faith because, well, if there wasn't a literal six-day creation, then what else in the Bible isn't true? If that's not true, what else isn't true? Did Jesus not die on the cross? And that is not a leap that should be made. Um, and it's a shame that so many people do make that leap because whether or not there was a six-day creation is, is, is not the same thing as whether or not Jesus died on the cross. Yeah. I get where you're going with that. And I, I appreciate that, that we are in full agreement that God's word is true. And even though I'm not going to fully understand all of it until I get mm -hmm. to heaven, I will certainly grapple with it and yeah. and be challenged by it and get corrected all the time. Yeah. <laughs> we're all going to get to heaven and all find out that we're wrong. My mother-in-law loves saying that, and she's absolutely right. She says that to me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, so oh, she's but, saying that among believers. Of course. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for coming on and doing the show. Oh, thank you for having me. This has been fun. Yeah, it's been fun for me, too. Um, Amanda Hope Haley has been my guest. Her book is called Mary Magdalene Never Wore Blue Eyeshadow, How to Trust the Bible When Truth and Tradition Collide. That's all the time we have. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.